to Attenuation, a weekly podcast where two friends come together to drink beer, discuss beer styles and trends, and just generally ruminate on the meaning of life, aka beer. If you enjoy your time with us, we invite you to become a weekly listener and subscribe to the podcast. Without further ado, here is this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Attenuation, a beer podcast. My name is Jason, and I'm joined by my best friend since eighth grade, Stephen. Hello. <laughs> so today, right on that time. yeah, you nailed it that time. <laughs> Last time I was nervous, but this time, right on the dot. <laughs> so today we're going to do a guide on deciphering the can. So we're going to cover all sorts of different information that can be printed on a beer can and what it means and some of its background and then we'll also try to mention a beer that related to whatever that data is that's that we enjoy drinking so but of course first the best part of the podcast we have to drink beer drinking beers <laughs> <laughs> so i have today i was good and i didn't drink stouts for a while maybe one two episodes i don't remember but i'm back on stout so Oh no. Today, <laughs> so today I have uh, French Toast Temptress from Lakewood Brewing Company. And this is, they're based in Garland, Texas, so in your neck of the woods. And this is an imperial milk stout brewed with lactose, maple syrup, and vanilla extract. So nice. it's supposed to taste like French toast. That's just the way I make my French toast. <laughs> so I am going to pour this guy. And then I will give my nose notes, and then I will pass it to you, Stephen. By the way, I know our viewers can't see this, but I found this very cool Sierra Nevada goblet. Nice. And I don't know if they're doing this anymore, but they used to have um, a beer that kind of went along with this goblet. I'll have to see if it still exists. So this is pouring. It's very nice and dark. And, ooh, okay, right away it smells like maple syrup. <laughs> So Sweet. I'm definitely getting the French toast vibes here. Yeah, the maple syrup is quite strong. So we'll have to see. I'm going to let it settle down a little bit. But why don't I pass it to you and let us know what you're drinking. Okay. Well, um, I am drinking electric lettuce from Moonraker Brewing. Ah, my neck of the woods. Yeah. If you listen to our very first episode when we talked about our, uh, sort of our journey into craft beer... Moonraker played a huge part of that for me because they were one of the first places I went that were making a lot of New England IPAs or hazy IPAs. So it was kind of the first time I was able to enjoy the hoppiness of a beer without having the bitterness in the way because, you know, it was a, it was a new style that really was kind of coming onto the scene at that point. Like it wasn't like crazy like it is now where everybody brews at least one hazy. Uh, where there they had a lineup of like 10 or 12 hazy ipas it was pretty awesome so anyway this was actually there when we um uh when we were there they they make this one uh i think it's one of their standards it should be kind of dank you know selected nice. lettuce <laughs> <laughs> they're referring to something there uh and they call this an imperial ipa so we'll talk about that a little later too but yeah, uh, it's eight and a half percent yeah <laughs> And canned on three twenty five twenty one, and with the date on the bot, the date stamp on the bottom, it also says "let us drink." Well, let us drink. 
I don't uh, know what the lettuce. <laughs> little pun they even, there. They even put jokes on their cans. <laughs> that's not on my. Uh, that's not, yeah, on, that's our not list on our of list of so I'm gonna pour this out. Of course, it's the beautiful pale straw color that I love in my hazies. Yeah, I'm smelling the dank from here, and I'm not even that close to it. Nice. Oh, I can see it from here. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's like an awesome sort of like floral bouquet of tropical fruit. A little bit of orange, grapefruit, passion fruit, maybe. You get a lot on the nose here. What are you tasting there? All right, French Toast Temptress is definitely living up to its name. I just get, I'm getting a lot of maple syrup and vanilla for sure. You know, it does, you know, it has, obviously has the underlying flavors of a stout, but this is definitely a dessert beer for sure. So... Sometimes, because a lot of times I think stouts have names where they sound like they're going to be really sweet, but they don't. They don't always live up to that. This one's <laughs> definitely living up to how, <laughs> to how sweet it sounds. So I do really like this. It's another one of those beers that you don't. I don't want to drink this all the time. It's kind of a you have to be in a very specific mood to drink something like this. But it's also nine point one percent, so it's strong, but it's not not like it's it's doable. <laughs> I almost got you beat with my Imperial IPA over here. What is the APA? eight and a half percent? Oh, all right. Well, we'll be fun this episode. <laughs> so awesome. I, yeah, this I is will a give, thumbs up, or I, I think this is a thumbs up, but I have to be. You obviously have to be in a specific mood to want to drink this. Yeah, it's kind of a sipper, I would assume. A slow sipper at the end of a night or something. And I might return to my notes because we're going to get to this, but it does have a recommended temperature that it's served at. Mm. And for stouts, you generally want them to get warmer. So this does say serve at 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So I took it out of the fridge probably. I should have probably took it out a little bit earlier. So we'll see. Uh, a lot of times the flavors kind of open up. You taste more and smell more as the beer warms. At least it's that's desirable in certain styles. Definitely desirable in a stout. How's that electric lettuce? Yeah. Well, what's funny is mine says keep it cold, drink it fresh, check the date. There you go. <laughs> see? <laughs> that's a big difference between uh stouts and ipas so this is really cool because i'm it's almost taking me back like time through time travel it is awesome like i this is i remember why i loved that trip to moonraker so much because this beer is amazing it's a little bit sweet there's like no bitterness and it just has this great like resiny pine dank taste that's like it's just it's so good i mean this is hops and I'm really excited about it. I was a little worried. I've gotten Moonraker. So the only way I get it now is through Tavor. And it shows up uh, rarely, um, just occasionally. So when I see it, I get it. But the first few times I got it from them, I don't know whether they just they had just started canning their stuff um, because it, the carbonation was really flat. And I just don't, I don't know whether they had maybe worked out all the kinks of their canning process. So it just, it will... I don't know, they were disappointing, but they nailed it now. So um, I, I'm guessing they just fixed that. Oh, that's awesome. And it sounded, you said the date on that can was, I think you said... Uh, 325. 325. So you're yeah. drinking it quite fresh then. Yeah, just over a month. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad they figured out that bug. Because I remember how excited you were on that trip. You were... It like blown. unlocked something in me. It really did. I remember... Then, yeah, since then I've just like I crave hops. Yeah, that Sometimes. was your, that was definitely your like uh, revel revelatory moment for yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I never realized I would just eat. I would crave something like I'd crave anything, like potato chips or something. Like I'd literally crave hops um, <laughs> and want to drink a hoppy beer. It's it's so weird that I even got to that point. But yeah, that's Windbreaker what happens. was a big part of that. That's really cool. Well, I'm glad you got to experience it again. And I, it, it's fun that you mentioned that it kind of is like a time capsule because that is true for me too. I think sometimes like smell and taste are super strongly correlated with memory. So sometimes a beer can take you back to a specific moment in time. Well, sometimes I worry too that I've had someone, so many different things and tried so many things that like I can't, they just kind of blend together, especially when you drink a lot of hazy IPAs. I don't know. I just sometimes think am i is it gonna get old or like i don't know am i just gonna get bored of it sometimes i think i am getting bored of it um because i don't know if there's something new to taste or if i if i necessarily remember tasting something before it's hard to keep like a real mental log of all these flavors so this is really exciting for me honestly to drink this and think oh like this is awesome like the they're hop wizards at Moonraker. i mean they really are like they unlock some amazing things from the hops and the beers that they make so this is really exciting dude i'm excited you're making me want to go out there (laughs) sorry i'm geeking out right here on the podcast but that's what the podcast is for (laughs) i think the beer nerds will there are some casual listeners listening right now thinking jeez man we're gonna gonna either one scare them away or two convert them to the dark side (laughs) are you crying (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great it reminds me of when you tell the story when you know you tell some people that aren't as into beer that we we waited you know four or five hours to taste Pliny, and they're like you did you did what (laughs) all those other people in line they know they understand they do all right so before we get into the main topic you had some exciting for you news yes so uh, I've mentioned many times on this podcast that one of my favorite beers of all time is Pseudo Sue from Toppling Goliath. They are in Decorah, Iowa, which if you know anything about Iowa, which I don't really know that much about Iowa other than that Decorah, Iowa is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's super random that this amazing world-class brewery is in the middle of nowhere. But they have pretty wide distribution. Like I think Jason just recently found some Pseudo Sue at his local total, total wine and more. So um, so they do have pretty good distribution, but they did not distribute to Texas, where I am. But they just announced that they've cleared all the hurdles, whatever hurdles those were. Like, I don't know, I think they had to get permission from some sort of Texas brewing thing, but or Texas Beer Association or something. But anyway, once they jumped through all the hurdles, they are now able to distribute in Texas, and they plan to distribute all through Texas. And even good more exciting news for you, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, so when are we going to see Sudo Sue in the store? When are we going to see King Sue in the store? That would be even more amazing. Maybe some Cherry Fandango in the store because that beer was awesome. That beer is awesome. Yeah. I want to go back because, yeah, like you said, I we do get it out here in Northern California. I don't I don't um, know if it's always been the case, but for whatever reason, the last time I was in Total Wine, they had a, a number of things, and they had Pseudo Sue, and I got very excited. I didn't see Cherry Fandango, but maybe I'll go back and look a little bit harder. I think we got um, some ideas this week about like what we could do for a podcast, and one of them was the like the brewery highlight, like highlight one brewery. That would be a fun one to do because 
they make a lot of amazing beers. I love that idea. Yeah, that'd yeah. be fun. Let's definitely do that on one of our next episodes. But yes, they're coming to Texas, and I'm very excited. I'll do another little news snippet. This is personal news. So okay. we did a little. We did an episode called White Whales a little while ago about these amazing beers that we wanted to try at least once in our life. And I caught a white whale. You did? What'd you get? I got Julius from Treehouse. No, you awesome. didn't. One of my very good friends at work <laughs> um, has a place in, or he has family or a place that he visits in Boston regularly. So when he's up there, he stops by Treehouse and Trillium and usually picks up some beer. And he brought me some Julius because I had taken him some Pliny the Elder when, uh, when I was in California. So fair enough. Fair felt enough. like he owed me, although I feel like I could never, ever pay him back. <laughs> I'm very jealous. Um, but yes, very I drank jealous. that, and it's really, really good. Like, <sighs> again, another one of those beers where I think, like, is it really going to wow me? You know, like, right? it's just another hazy There's idea. There's so much hype, you never know, right? Yeah, sometimes I worry that I'm going to be disappointed, but I wasn't. It was really good. Well, that's on my White Whale list, list as well, so I'm very jealous. That's okay, though. <laughs> one day, one day. One day. That's the fun of having the whale list. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So we are going to run down a bunch of things you can find printed on a can and tell you what they mean. Especially these days, they tend to, some breweries like to put like tons of information on their can. It's kind of yeah, overwhelming. Yeah, for sure. And then we're going to pair each of them with a beer we like. So I think, yeah, we'll just go down the list and we can discuss these. I and obviously, honestly, I, I, I'm going to learn some stuff on this list because <laughs> I don't know all of these. So hopefully Stephen will be my guide. But um, we're going to start easy. We're going to start very easy. Yeah. And some of these things we've touched on before briefly. But, you know, I'll just give you a kind of a little brief overview of each of the things and just help you when you're looking at cans. Because really, like if you're especially if you're new to craft beer these days, there's so many different things and so many different things that they'll write on a can and the i will say like some of these definitions are very very broad or open to interpretation because they're not there's no like governing body that um makes these makes any one of these words or things mean something or have to mean something exactly so um, it kind of goes back to our like Kolsch versus Kolsch style ill, you know, like what is the difference just because it doesn't come from that geographic area, um, but they have to say that. So, but but nobody's actually enforcing any of that. So, but yeah, so we'll kind of go over these terms and uh, hopefully help you kind of decipher what things mean when you're, when you're reading the can. So. All right, I'm going to let you go first. Ale. All right. <laughs> what is an ale? Um, well, this is like one of the broadest areas broadest definitions of beer um essentially there if you break it down there are basically two different ways to make beer uh and one ends up as an ale and one ends up as a lager uh, and your ale can vary between pale ale ipa uh, stout um, blonde ale uh, there's just any number of ales lambics grisettes you go into the weird you know there's um uh, all sorts of things, but really it comes down to what is the yeast that you're fermenting the beer with. All beer is uh, water, hops, barley, and yeast, uh, and then it just depends on what yeast you use that makes it either an ale or a lager. So if you use a top fermenting, warm fermenting beer, uh, yeast, it's going to make an ale. And then if you use a bottom fermenting 
cold fermenting yeast. It's going to be a lager. Nice. Uh, I guess I kind of, I kind of killed two birds with one stone there. Because <laughs> the next one was lager. Because the next okay. one was lager. <laughs> okay, so give us an example of an ale and give us an example of a lager, a beer you like. Well, right in the name, it's Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. That's an ale. It's one you're going to see a lot in the stores and on tap at various places, widely distributed. Um, and one of the like OG craft beers. We love to mention it here. I love to mention it here because I think it's just one of those beers that paved the way for craft beer. But yeah, it's Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And then Lager, we like to go kind of hipster here and give you the example of PBR because I actually love PBR and it was one of my first like real beers that I started like when I started to drink beer, which I was drinking mostly just lagers. PBR was the one that I enjoyed the most. So Awesome. I had a PBR phase as well. Yeah, I think we all did, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll definitely still drink one under the right conditions. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I will handle the next one. And it's basically born date or canned on date. So this has gotten very popular. And this is something that didn't exist when I first got in craft beer. But uh, I think it's become more apparent to people and more out there that certain styles, especially IPAs, you want to drink them fresher. So one of the things that the brewery started doing is they would print on the can the date that the beer was canned. So you can kind of gauge how old it is you're buying. Uh, probably the more famous example of this is actually uh, Stone Brewing did a, does a, and I don't know if they still do it, but I remember for a long time they were doing a Best Buy series. So they were really prominently displaying the date you should drink this beer by because the beer would say Stone Brewing Best Buy like 4 15 2021 right so <laughs> they were just out there and saying you should drink this beer by then and um that was a good interesting strategy i think they got a lot of awareness out there that yeah some beer you want to drink fresher it might have backs uh, backfired on them a little bit because i do remember <laughs> i would go to the store and you know those those came at bombers at the time that i was seeing them all the time and they were like nine or ten dollars but I did know that, and I'd actually go pick them up sometimes at Nugget, the local grocery store we had. The, after that date, they had to mark them way down because it's pretty hard to sell a beer that says Best Buy, you know, March 1st when it's May. So, like in huge font on the yeah, front it's, of the bottle. it's huge font. So like, <laughs> it's not something you're going to accidentally drink late. <laughs> no. So I don't know, like, overall how their sales were. And obviously, I think at, at that point, after the grocery store has it, it's their problem if they don't sell it, right? So they're the ones that have to mark it down. But it was an interesting kind of way that they got the kind of got the message out there. And I, I think that might have been one of the first things that started to make me more aware of, like, oh, yeah, you do want to drink certain styles. Fresher is better than older. So I was just looking through um, some uh, my beer fridge looking for a beer to drink tonight. And um, I can't remember what the brewery was, but it was it's another IPA. And um, the can says like something like if, if it's not cold, ask why or something. Ask why not. You know, like um, all these breweries are getting pretty serious about making sure their IPAs are consumed fresh because and cold well you know it's funny that you mentioned that is when one of the first times i went to russian river you might have been with me uh, there's always a lot of people there buying pliny but i do remember that there was someone in line that had brought a beer chest full of ice and the second they got their you know their 12 packs of pliny or whatever they come in eight packs they put them in the beer chest of ice what a beer snob <laughs> i know and at the time i was like this guy's 
ridiculous. <laughs> but now I'm like, Man, now you're like, I would totally that. be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> like I knew what he was doing. He was ahead of his time. <laughs> I have another story about cold beer. So I was at Sierra Nevada and I was in their very well designed brewery. I think they're all like this, but after you go on the tour where they give you, you know, multiple things to taste, you're getting a little fun. They release you right into their gift shop slash like beer store, basically. <laughs> and I remember they had all the beer, all the actually they're very good about this. All the beer they have in the beer store is in refrigerators. And I remember one of the person that was working there mentioned, by the way, all the beer that's in this fridge has never been warm, <laughs> basically, like from the moment it was canned or bottled, it was immediately put in this fridge and it's cold. So it's pretty much as fresh as you can get it. That So maybe that's another place I should bring the, the ice chest to. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just start Ooh. bringing one everywhere you go. Right? So pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, generally in the grocery store, a lot of IPAs do end up on the shelf. So it's kind of, it is what it is. But that's interesting that they put on the can itself, like, hey, if this is warm, ask why. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's another good, that's another good thing about um, the move to cans too, is because no matter how dark the bottle is, even if it's the darkest, brownest bottle, it's going to have light degradation as well. And you don't get that in cans. So um, I think that's one of the reasons breweries have moved to cans. That's a super good point. I didn't think about that. Yep. All right. So next up, I have serve at temperature. So perfect example is the beer I'm drinking tonight, French Toast Temperance. It has a recommended temperature. So, yeah, sometimes if the brewer wants you to enjoy it in a certain temperature range, they'll put it right there on the can. Yeah, and I think um, what you'll notice is that some flavors will just open up. You know, it's kind of like chilling a, a red wine, you know. You can kind of, you can almost get away with it with a cheaper wine and enjoy it more because it almost hides a bad wine. Kind of the same thing with beer. Being super cold might kind of hide some flaws, but if you let it warm up, you're really going to you're gonna taste how it's supposed to be consumed. So yeah. So pretty cool that they put it on here. All right, I'm going to let you tackle the next one. Next one is dry hopped. Okay, you're going to get me talking about hops? It's going to yeah, be a long the... episode. <laughs> the tangents are the best part. Yeah. yeah, okay, so dry hopping. You're going to see that a lot these days. Um, you're going to see double dry hop, triple dry hopped. I even saw quadruple dry hopped the other day. All with the same meaning, basically, that they are adding hops during fermentation and not during the boil. So um, if you are making beer, if you're home brewing, you're going to take your wort, which is your unfermented beer. Basically, it's like a tea made with grains steeped in water. So you have your sweet wort. You're going to boil that. Um, and there's multiple purposes to that. Uh, you can get color with your boil. And then by adding hops at different stages in the boil, uh, the longer you boil hops in the water, it does different things to the acids from the hops. So the longer the acids sit in the boil, the more bitter they express themselves. So the earlier hop additions, those are going to be your bittering hops. So the point, uh, the main point of those hop additions is to bitter the beer. And then as you, as you hop further and further along in the boil, those are your more aromatic and flavor additions to the beer. But those are all um, boil hop additions. Um, but then if you dry hop, that's when you've cooled the wort after the boil, you've pitched your yeast, and now your um, yeast are fermenting. And during that couple weeks of fermentation at different stages, 
you might do a, what's called a dry hopping, um, which is a hop addition to the beer during fermentation. Those hops are not getting boiled at all. So now you, what you're doing is imparting more flavors and aromas without imparting any bitterness basically at all. So any beer that's dry hopped, double dry hopped, uh, it's going to tend to be more flavor forward, more aroma forward, and with less bitterness. Okay, very good. And what's an right. example of a dry hop? So there's a, a brewery in New York called Other Half. They're amazing hop wizards as well. They make a double mosaic dream, double dry hopped IPA. Um, and that, and again, that's one of those sort of vague definitions. Double dry hopped can mean, I mean, it's like, what does that mean? Does it mean it's dry hopped two times during fermentation? Was it dry hopped with double the amount of hops that, I don't know, <laughs> from a single hopped, you know, <laughs> double mosaic dream? Is there a, is there a once dry hopped double mosaic dream or is this? Um, <laughs> once, <laughs> once dry hopped. <laughs> um, so the, the definition can be kind of fuzzy, and that's where these breweries tend to take the, their creative liberties with how they name their beers. Maybe just double dry hops, the alliteration of it rolls off the tongue better than single dry hop. I know, I was going to say, double dry hop definitely sounds way cooler. <laughs> 1.5 dry hopped. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see one of those. I'm going to brew one of those myself. And just, yeah, 1.5 yeah, dry hops. Half. Just rolls <laughs> off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. I'm going to toss you the next one, too, okay. because this is the one I didn't know about, and um, I've never had one of these. So what is a wet hopped beer? Okay. So if you heard that and you heard dry hopping and wet hopping, like a lot of people would assume that wet, wet hopping is the opposite of dry hopping, which would be hopping during the boil or something like that. But that's not what it means. They are not, they're really two separate terms. They are not opposite of each other. Wet hopping means you are hopping the beer with super fresh hops. And what it usually means is that these breweries have their beer boiling usually or almost to the point of boil. And then they are going and they're harvesting the hops and then they're taking them straight back to the brewery and hopping the beer. So usually there's, again, there's no exact definition of what a fresh hop or wet hopped beer, it, it, what it means to, to achieve that um, definition. But um, usually it's within a few hours of the hops being harvested off the vines. Um, they're being added to the beer. Wow, and, so you're not joking. They're boi the beer is boiling and they're... <laughs> Yeah, they're like ready. They're picking the hops. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Um, so a lot of times, like a lot of these are um, sort of geographically locked because most of the hops in the United States are grown in the um, Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, and really there's only a few other places in the world where um, like the majority of hops are grown. Um, New Zealand is kind of the newest place where a lot of hops are being grown. But anyway, so the, the breweries are that are making these fresh hop or wet hop beers are usually in that area where they can get, they're able to get the hops and get them back to the brewery within a few hours. Right. It's, it's impossible otherwise. So yeah, it's just not going to be possible for most. Uh, I mean like Sierra Nevada, I think Sierra Nevada has a fresh hop ale. I'm pretty sure. I and wouldn't believe it. Cause they do. I have seen they grow hops. Yeah. They grow their own yeah. or they grow some of their own. Um, so yeah, some breweries grow their own hops, uh, and if they do that, then it's very possible that they could have a fresh hop or wet hop beer. Um, what's really interesting is that 
the acids from the hops are very volatile. They're very fragile. And so what's interesting is like, I think the idea behind a fresh hop or wet hop beer is that you wouldn't have any oil degradation. You wouldn't have it. Those, those oils wouldn't have a chance. Those acids wouldn't have a chance to break down before you got them in the beer. So you'd be getting, you'd extract more from the hop or, or, or whatever the idea was, but it actually, it just can be very hit or miss. I think maybe you just lose a little bit of control over how many, how much oil you get in or how much acid you get in there from the hops or, um, I don't know. I think they're just a little bit more finicky than say hop cones that have been processed and, and, uh, turned into pellets or something. So that's uh, fascinating. So, so have yeah. you had a wet hopped beer? Yeah. So, um, Bale Breaker Brewing, which is in Yakima, Washington, they, that brewery sits right in the middle of hop fields. It's pretty awesome. And so they are able to make one of these beers, obviously, because of the, the access to fresh hops. Um, so they make one called Citrus Liquor. Uh, that's won tons of awards for um, in the wet hop category. And it was awesome. And it was, I mean, I, I wish I could describe it in like what, like what the difference was, but um, you know, it's anything, anytime you drink something that's, or eat something that's fresh, you know, like you pick tomatoes out of your own garden or something like it's different. I don't know if you can explain how it's different. It's different, you know, it just tastes fresh. And that's exactly what I got from that beer. So again, like I said, it's sometimes it's hit or miss for the brewery, whether the beer turns out the way they want it, want it to turn out. Um, but obviously they've, they've at least somewhat got this one down to a science and, and it uh it was pretty amazing nice i'm jealous i'm excited wait are they going to be making that when we go there i don't know i hope they are i really yeah, want to try a wet hop now all right cool thank you steven i didn't know what that was so next we have imperial i'm gonna try my hand at this uh, but this is one of those ones that like it doesn't actually mean it could mean like a thousand things and it can mean almost nothing from what I understand, it just means that the beer is strong. Like, that's what I've always taken from Imperial. It has a higher ABV than you usually find. Um, it's of a, like, so if they make a regular IPA, they're kind of, when they're saying Imperial, or I see sometimes double Imperial, they're signifying to the drinker, the potential drinker, like, hey, this is a very strong beer. This is going to have a higher, maybe more intense flavor. It's going to have a higher ABV. So I've always seen it as like a pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> is that what is that kind of what you would say that Imperial means or? Yes, I tend to find that um, like from the from experience of drinking things that are called Imperial, I tend to taste more alcohol on them and I tend to they tend to be higher alcohol also, but also the the. The flavor of the alcohol comes out stronger, and and that seems to be the most common sort of finding for me when I drink these beers. Um, is it just higher alcohol and more like more likelihood that um, you actually taste that alcohol in the beer? All right, perfect. Well, I don't know I'm if gonna... that's the case with stouts. Do you find that? I guess, yeah. I think, yeah. I think it's generally saying, "Hey, this is stronger than usual." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And historically, I think it's attributed to Russian Imperial. It says the uses is derived from the venerable Russian Imperial Stout brewed in the 1700s. So I think that's kind of the first documented case of them saying, hey, 
this is the real deal. This <laughs> is imperial beer. <laughs> so yeah, but now you'll see imperial, double imperial, I think triple imperial. You'll see those kind of put on beers. But I think generally what that means now is stronger than usual. I think that's kind of how I would define it. Yeah, and I think like um, that's the thing. Like an like, what's the difference between an imperial IPA and a double IPA? I technically I don't know, <laughs> um, but I think for me a double IPA again might actually hide that um, alcohol flavor. Uh, maybe it will be higher alcohol, but not necessarily come through in the taste. Whereas like I've had imperial IPAs that had a super overwhelming alcohol flavor to them. So. Um, so again, if you're if you see that on a can, that that might be what you can expect. All right, perfect. And then I picked for my example. I actually really like North Coast Brewing's Old Rasputin, which is an Imperial Russian stout. It's a good one. Never had that one. Uh, drink a lot more stouts before you try that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a gateway stout. It's not a gateway stout. Oh, okay. Yeah, keep drinking your dragon's milk. Drinking my my milk stouts, <laughs> my pastry stouts. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm drinking a. This is technically, I think, a pastry yeah. stout. Yeah, it is. So okay, next we have wild. Well, I think we've t- talked about this a little bit. Um, so some of the sours, especially the old school, um, kind of the original sours like fruit and. Germany and Belgium, you know, they were just fermenting with whatever yeast landed in them. They would just sort of open the top of the fermentation tank and whatever landed in them was what fermented them. So um, that's usually what it means is uh, some sort of wild fermentation or open fermentation um, where they just let the wild yeast ferment the beer. I mean, I think these days where even breweries that call a certain sour a, a wild sour or a farmhouse sour, lots of times they're still controlling the yeast that is fermenting the beer. They just they know that it's more of a wild souring strain of yeast, and they put it in the beer. So I, I wouldn't say that it's always necessarily open fermentation, but um, our, our example that we, we wrote down was uh, Russian River Intinction. And one that's one of the most amazing parts of their new facility in Windsor, California, is the uh, the sour side of the um, brewery where they have a uh, a big what's called a coal ship. Um, it's basically just this really really big shallow pool um, that they fill with the unfermented beer, and then they open the windows and they let the the local wild yeast blow in through the night. And uh, and then they send the the beer back to the tanks to ferment. So it's pretty awesome, and the result is pretty amazing. Um, and it gives you this like um, there's a word that every once in a while you'll see. It's terroir is how you pronounce it. It's T E R R O I R, and basically that just means like like the lo- like when they say the local terroir, that's like the the local environment. The 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 flavors and the aromas and the earthiness of the local environment. It's really big in wine. I mean, you'll see it a lot in wine because so much of winemaking and good winemaking comes from the, like where the grapes are grown, what temperature they grow at, uh, the climate they're at, 
um, the soil. And what's really interesting about hops, actually, is if you take the rhizosomes of, of, a, of a hop from the Pacific Northwest and you take it down to New Zealand and you grow it in New Zealand, like the hop has different aromas and flavors, even though it's the same hop, because it's all affected by the climate and the soil that it's grown in. So what's really cool about some of Russian Rivers, Wild Ales, um, we also have Jester King on the outskirts of Austin in Texas. And there's a Plan B Brewing in um, New York. They do a lot of these amazing wild fermented ales that are really trying to capture the terroir of, of where they're being brewed because they're capturing the yeast, the what makes up the environment in that area. Um, so they're, the flavors that are imparted are just, those are the local flavors of the local yeast that blow through the wind. So it's a very cool idea. That's really awesome. It's capturing the locale. Yeah, so you could, so basically what you're saying is you could do the exact same process, the exact same recipe, but if you did it at another place on earth, you wouldn't get the same beer. Yeah, exactly. Which is, that's really awesome. Yeah. All right, so, very cool. So that's what you'll see if you'll see wild or you'll see farmhouse ale is a kind of another uh indication that it's wild fermented usually going to be a little funky a little sour for sure and then we tried it was intinction right was the beer they were making in that room yeah so very cool one of the coolest rooms i i i think i said on a previous episode but one of the coolest rooms i've ever been in in my entire life yeah they like Uh, designed it to look like a belgian abbey and it's just really cool yeah and all the all the wood was left kind of untreated so that it would absorb yeah the wood absorbs like the yeast cultures and ugh, that's just a cool idea yeah super cool i i look forward because we are actually in there when they first constructed it so i look forward to going back in like 20 years and that room will just be <laughs> a, a living room yeah <laughs> like yeast crawling through every crevice <laughs> yeah so all right perfect so next we have kettle soured so i'm actually gonna let me do that one too (laughs) i'm gonna let you tackle this one because i'm gonna mess it up i'll do the next one no that's okay uh because again if you get me talking on kettle souring and hops like i'll talk your ear off so i apologize but um so this is really kind of a new thing fal allen is the head brewer at anderson valley brewing in um, ukiah california he's one of the early pioneers of this um souring style um, so basically, they wanted to create sour beers on a level where they could control the sourness. And sometimes with the wild sours, you're just you're um, you're at the mercy of the yeast and the bacteria that are fermenting your beer. So what they figured out is they could pitch the wort, the unfermented beer. They could pitch that with uh, like a lactobacillus bacteria, like you would find in yogurt, um, that's going to produce lactic acid. Um, so they pitch that into the wort and it begins, the bacteria begin to produce lactic acid from the, from eating the sugar. Well, then you could just test the pH or you could taste it along the way until, you know, maybe three, four days later, you decided that it's at the right sourness you want, especially if you're testing the pH level, you can just get it to an exact pH level. And then you start your boil. Well, now you're going to kill off all the bacteria. So you're not going to get any more um, lactic acid production, but you are, um, but you, but you keep the lactic acid that's there already. So now your sourness is uh, built into the beer, and now you can cool the wort after the boil and um, and ferment with yeast, 
and you keep that sourness um, without gaining any more or, or losing any in the later processes. So it's a really cool idea, and at this point, it's so widely used. Anderson Valley really, he, Fal Allen was a big proponent of bringing back the Goza style, and he was able to do that through kettle souring. So you're going to see that written on, on a lot of beer cans now. Nice. No, that's very clever. Like it's a, I like that you can control it. So if we ever make a kettle sour, Stephen, I wanted to make it as sour as possible. <laughs> we're gonna let the, we're gonna let that bacteria go for weeks. For yeah. <laughs> um, the other, um, and what, what's cool actually is that like, so the, some of the other methods used to sour beer, like in a controlled environment, is to just literally buy food grade lactic acid and just add it to the beer. Um, the other way is um, you can buy malts that are acidulated. They have acid on lactic acid on them. So as you use the malts to make the wort, all, some of that lactic acid comes off and makes a sour wort. I've had all three styles that made in all three ways and kettle souring is by far the most like authentic souring. Um, the other two just taste synthetic and I mean... Maybe I'm snobby and I can tell the difference, <laughs> or I can I'm pretending to tell the difference, but I think that there is a, a difference in uh, in quality. So, I think if you see sour ales these days, um, most of the time you can assume that they're not wild soured unless it says. Um, so you can assume that they are soured in some other way other than kettle souring. So if you see kettle souring, then you're gonna know that it's the I, I what personally in my opinion is the best way to sour outside of wild souring, the most authentic way. Other than that, yeah, I don't. I can't promise you. I can't promise what you're getting. But. All right, you know what we're gonna do? Or I'm gonna set up a blind taste test for you. See if I can tell the difference. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> don't do that. And then I'm gonna report the results to the, our our good listeners. Uh, because one, either I'll fail miserably, or two, <laughs> I'll pass and I'll have confirmed my beer snobbery. And we'll... <laughs> Your ego will level up. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Okay, so what? It's a lose lose situation. <laughs> What's your example of a kettle soured ale? Okay, or, so yeah. yeah, so one of my favorite places right now is Prairie Artisan Ales from Oklahoma, and they make all these all these really really nice tasting fruity sour ales. But one of theirs is Rainbow Sherbet, and it like it is literally like putting your spoon in right into Rainbow Sherbet. Like it's just a I can't remember the flavors. Like I think it's like raspberry, pineapple, and orange or something like that. But oh, it's so good! It's so good. So they're they've got their kettle sour program nailed, nice. and that's that's what you find is you find like a brewery. If you get like one good kettle sour from them, like you know, you can probably keep going back to them for kettle sours because usually they've like figured it out. They have down to a science. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Okay, I can handle the next one. So bottle, <laughs> bottle conditioned. So you'll have to only correct me on one part. So I think for the vast majority of beers, they actually add the CO2. Yeah, they force carbonate. They force carbonate it, right? Yeah. But bottle conditioning is where you can actually have the residual yeast do the job for you. So they're putting a little bit of sugar in the finished beer, and then the residual yeast a byproduct is the carbonation. So it's kind of a cool way to handle it. I think it seems more elegant than forced carbonation. I don't know if there's any validity to that. <laughs> and then I 
the other thing you'll notice on a bottle conditioned beer, sometimes it'll say bottle conditioned and it might have a certain disclaimer of you will find like a little layer of yeast on the bottom. Um, so they just kind of warn you, you know, as you're pouring it out, if there's some sediment on the bottom, not to worry. That's just the yeast. Yeah, you've essentially um, had like a another like a secondary like mini fermentation. And so you've got like fermentation waste that sits at the bottom you know, and dead yeast. So should you drink the dead yeast or? If you want. Probably good for you. (laughs) So, and then our example of bottle conditioned actually was one of the ones you liked. uh, So you should introduce that one. Oh, yeah. So like I I just mentioned Jester King. They actually bottle condition everything. They're, like I said, they're they're making wild ales. So they like to sort of preserve that natural beer making. um, And so they bottle condition everything. One of their um, flagships, they don't, they change their beer up a lot, but um, one of their flagships is called Biera de Miel, which is brewed with like Texas honey. But it's really good. And that's a, a, a good um, example of a bottle conditioned beer. And any, right. like mo- most home brewers, if you're bottling your beer, that's what you're doing. That, that's basically your only option because you don't have like a commercial way to carbonate and can your or bottle your beer. So um, if anybody, if you ever have a home brew from somebody bottled, um, most likely they just, when they put the beer into the bottle, they put a little bit of extra sugar at the bottom and, and then they capped it and they kept it for a couple more weeks and let the, the bottle can, um, carbonate itself. All right, perfect. A horrible process I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah when you try to do it yourself uh yeah it's a lot of work because you have to sanitize every single bottle and it's a pain in the butt so i switched over to just putting it in the keg and force carbonating the keg <laughs> nice so that's how lazy i am nah, lazy smart <laughs> it's a fine line it's hard to share that way though ah yes that is true all right. Well, I'll tackle the next one because this is a uh, close this to my heart. This is all you. Uh, so bar- <laughs> barrel aged. So barrel aged just means that they took the finished beer and then they put it in a barrel. And that barrel could be anything. We've seen the gambit run with what they barrel aged beer in. So a good example and one of the things that I think is really interesting, Russian River will barrel age a lot of their beers in. They're right in the kind of close to Napa Valley. So they use a lot of wine barrels and they'll use different styles of wine and they'll barrel age their beer in that barrel. And that'll do a number of things. First of all, two, well, two main things are going to happen. One, the barrel is going to impart flavor into the beer. So if it was in wine, you're going to, you might get notes of that wine. You're also going to get notes of the barrel, um, the wood. And then two, the beer is going to kind of evolve while it's in the barrel. So it might mellow out some tasting, some tasting notes that weren't present before it went into the barrel might start to flourish. It's just, it's going to evolve basically. And you can get a lot of surprising results when you barrel age things. And like really the sky's the limit with uh, what's been barrel aged. I know there's a barrel aged stout called the abyss and I've seen, they basically just had a line where they barrel aged it in everything you can imagine. They were barrel aging it in like tequila barrels. They were aging it. They were barrel aging it in whiskey barrels. Just you name the barrel that it's, that's been used and you can find a beer that's been aged in those barrels. So just because I like stouts, this is something I'm very interested in. So I've tried, actually prefer just the regular abyss. I, I think 
some of it's a little gimmicky when they're like, oh, yeah, this is whiskey barrels. And or maybe my, as I always say as a disclaimer, maybe my palate is not sophisticated enough to <laughs> differentiate. But sometimes they do think it's a little gimmicky when they're just, they're kind of selling, oh, it's been an interesting barrel. But I think most barrel-aged stuff is, it's almost like any barrel will do, I think. Because I think you do get a lot of interesting things that happen as you, you get barrel-aged. And what's really cool, and um, kind of, I think it's the example I picked. Yeah, it is. So, a really good example, and if you can ever try them side-by-side, side, it will kind of highlight what's happening. Um, so, Sierra Nevada Narwhal, they have regular Narwhal, which is their Imperial Stout. And then they have barrel-aged Narwhal. So, if you ever have the opportunity, if you're at Sierra Nevada or you somehow get both of these bottles at once you should really try them side by side because that's gonna really elucidate like that this is what barrel aging does because they're gonna taste different um the bear the barrel aged one is amazing um but yeah so barrel age that's something that's near and dear to my heart so definitely tackle that one nice uh, i have a um i don't know did you mention gin i've seen gin barrels i think gin i, I should tequila pull up the, barrels yep tequila all with very very interesting results yeah so i'm pulling it up right now but yeah the abyss has done a tequila barrel oh really okay so yeah. even with the abyss oh that's awesome and i know they did a scotch one and they might have done yeah who knows what else they did but yeah so they're trying everything partially because i think they just want to know what the results will be and partially because i think it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> it's a clever way to sell a beer because not many beers are being barrel aged in tequila barrels sure well, um, recently I've seen a few different um, examples of like like beers that were trying to like be mocktails almost, like beers that are trying to emulate a cocktail style. Um, so they'll brew it with like the ingredients that you might find in a certain cocktail, and then they'll they'll barrel age it in that. You know, if it's a gin cocktail or a tequila cocktail or something like that, they would age it in those barrels and kind of get the notes of that uh, with some pretty cool results. I wish I had an example right off the top of my head, but I've had a gin barrel aged one that was like a yeah, like a gin mocktail, and it was cool. Huh, that's super interesting. I have not had one of those. I will keep an eye out for those. All right, so next we have nitro. I I'll try to handle this one. So nitro instead of um, instead of forced carbonating with CO two using a different gas, the body of the beer is going to be different. The head of the beer is going to be different. Usually the head will be it's very fine, very fine bubbles. And they'll kind of all stack on top of each other. Usually like very white. So you get this very tall white head. And then the kind of the body it imparts on the beer is, it makes it very creamy, almost like rich and smooth. So you'll see a lot of times, um, I've seen them occasionally, like you'll go to a brewery and they have one nitro brew. Uh, it goes very well with like stouts. Like for example, the example I'm going to give is one you might be able to find because I, I assume this would be nationally distributed, but Guinness has a nitro cold brew coffee. So that might be something if you never had a nitro beer, you could try that and just kind of experience the difference. But it's very different when you use that instead of, uh, you know, the regular carbonation. Yeah, I think it's so much better for a stout, uh, at least for me. Like when I'm drinking a stout, I just... I don't know, especially, I mean, the, the only nitros I've really had have been on tap at a brewery and they're, you know, they're carbonating with nitrogen. It's just like changes the whole experience. A couple of weeks ago, I drank that um, banana Foster's stout on the podcast. And one of my like main problems with that beer was the carbonation just seemed weird. Like it was, 
it was like almost soda carbonated but like i'm trying to enjoy this kind of sweet chocolate milky beer and it just didn't work so that beer nitro carbonated would have been pretty awesome i think yeah i yeah and i often see it paired with stouts because i think it goes really well with that style so that's a kind of a something cool but i i agree like you said i think i think generally the place i've had those is on tap at a brewery so if they have the ability to do a nitro usually they'll carry one so keep an eye out for that um if you want to try one of those I don't I know if it translates to the can. I guess it does. Okay. Well, it's funny because I, I don't know if I don't think it was, but I in my earlier beer days, I used to think Guinness, just regular Guinness in the can, was like the coolest thing ever because there was like a marble in there. <laughs> Do you remember what <laughs> uh, I'm talking about? And you had to like you take the Guinness can and you would turn it over, like and a paint hear, can. Yeah, and you'd hear the thunk, and then you would like so you turn it over a couple times and you hear the thunk, 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 thunk. Uh, okay. And then that agitate the beer because Guinness hmm. has a really, really fine, very thick, extremely residual, like it'll last a really long time um, head. So then when you poured it, it and it would do this cool thing, like if you pour it in a tall glass where you just kind of see the the carbonation flow through the whole body of the beer. And then I don't know, it's kind of cool. So I used to think that was like the height <laughs> of beer was getting a Guinness and agitating yeah. it. And then pouring it, and I, I mean, yeah, it's it is it's still really cool, um, but yeah. So I don't I don't think those were nitroed the regular Guinness, but they did have that kind of gimmick of like, yeah. But they the, do they have were, nitro in a can, like we know that yeah. for sure. So yeah, uh, I, I I assume it must translate somewhat. Yeah, for sure. So keep an eye out, or let us know if you know of a, a, a canned, especially if it's like something that you could get available like nationally. I'd like to check yeah. it out. Um, so we have three more, but they're not really specific to beer. Um, we have International Bittering Units, IBU. That's yeah. something you can see on a can. In fact, my French Toast Temptress has a 56 IBU. So they're basically trying to measure how bitter the beer is. However, I don't think it's an exact science. And I think, you know, depending on the grain bill and some of the other factors you can still have a you can have a higher ibu but the you know what it reminds me of it's like when <laughs> the real feel for weather so you know like oh they say it's kind of oh, like be, what does the beer actually or yeah, what does the exactly. weather actually feel like what does yeah. the weather actually feel like yeah it's like 40 degrees but the wind and the rain make it feel like it's you know 23 degrees they need a real feel ibu <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we got to get that started. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah, and it's probably again, it's so subjective. Um, the IBU. I mean, technically, it is kind of an exact science in that it's just measuring the amount of certain acid isohumulene. I think it or isohumulone is the the most important bittering acid that you get from hops. So it really is just measuring the level of isohumulone in the beer. But how that is actually expressed in the final beer, that's what is, can be so different. So 150 IBU beer can be completely different in terms of perceived bitterness um, from a different 50 IBU beer just because of like, you know, what the malt is or even like some of the like darker grains, some of the darker malts are going to impart a lot of like acid flavors. And that can also impart more bitterness than even just then then what comes from the hops so you may not be tasting hop bitters bitterness you might be tasting malt bitterness um so it's not an exact science um it's kind of become i think it got really popular in that sort of hop race 
you know, where breweries were trying to brew the hoppiest beer. And so they could say like, oh, my beer is 150 hops. Yeah. Do you know what the, the highest uh, like advertised IBUs of a beer is? No. What was it? 2,500. What beer was that? <laughs> it's, um, oh, shoot. I should have looked it up. I'm sorry. Podcast fail. You're good. I uh, got you. I'm trying yeah. to look it up right now. 2,500. I think there's another one that's 2,200 or something. But it's all very gimmicky. And like I said, I think it was very popular in that hop race. That has kind of cooled off, especially with the trend of hazy IPAs now where IBUs don't even matter, really. Gotcha. I'd like to try one of those. I wonder if they still make any of those crazy IBUs. But I mean, I, I used it early on, like I've said before. Um, when I first got into trying hoppy styles, I used to look for like IBUs of 30 to 50. It was kind of a good range for like... Oh, this imparts, you know, some hoppiness, but I knew it wasn't going to be overwhelming or I had a, I had somewhat of an idea. So it's just like very, it's just a general idea of uh, how bitter a beer might be, but there's just so many other factors that are going to affect your perceived bitterness. So. You know, it's funny too. I, I, pull, I quickly pulled up a list of uh, some of the highest, hoppiest beers of all time. And I'm just looking at the release dates and they all range between 2011 2012 and 2015 so i feel like that that, was like that was the great hop race mm -hmm, that was the great hop race i feel like it's (laughs) early 2010 so over now yeah 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 it's done okay so next we have standard reference model srm what does that mean so srm is just a, a reference to the color of the beer um i feel like it's modern times brewing that they put the srm on their beer do you have SRM on yours? Yes, you know, it's so funny. I picked the perfect beer for this accidentally. There's so much data on this beer. Oh, nice. I tried I to had... find one, and I didn't have a good one, so. Yeah, French Just Temptress has SRM. 33 SRM on this one. Okay. So the, your your top end of the SRM is going to be like 45. Okay, that makes sense, because uh, this is pretty like dark. Darkest, darkest beers. Um, so 33 is obviously pretty dark. 5 is going to be your pale lagers. Um, so kind of 5 to 45 um, and it's kind of cool. I mean, if that's printed on the beer can, kind of helpful, especially if you know you like a darker style or you like maltier styles or something. You can see like, oh, that's kind of more on the darker side. I'll probably like that. I think, I don't know, it might even be more helpful than IBUs because it gives you somewhat of an idea of what your flavor profile is going to be. I definitely appreciate the data. Like, I would love to see all the data printed on every beer. but it's cause... Yeah. And I'm I'm a data nerd too, so this trend of putting more stuff on the can is so cool. Even just like these breweries that put the what hops they use on the can, and uh, a lot of them now are doing like food pairings on the can. Yeah, yours. Yep. <laughs> Dang, so that bottle uh, has it all, yeah. dude. Lakewood Brewing, you guys are brewing. You're doing a yeah. great job. You're just just yeah, you're just closing <laughs> all the information. Yep, this has pairs well with and they're very cheeky one of the things they listed is just breakfast <laughs> so yeah if you're uh the Maybe. type of person that wants to drink a nine percent stout with breakfast hey if you're on holiday or it's the weekend why not right for your aa meeting <laughs> <laughs> okay so last but not least we have specific gravity so this is one probably like we could probably delve even farther into this one, but the specific gravity of water is one. And so the specific gravity of any liquid is going to change in relation to um, like what's dissolved into the 
beer or what's into the liquid. So um, anything with a specific gravity gravity higher than one means it has it's like water plus stuff um, that makes the gravity higher. What's going to happen is as you uh, as a beer ferments. Uh, the specific gravity, you're going to start with a specific gravity of the wort, and then after fermentation, you're going to have a different specific gravity. And the difference between that, uh, those, the starting and the ending specific gravity is going to tell you what the um, alcohol content is. So that's, that's the main driver of specific gravity is how many sugars were fermented into alcohol. So that's the quick way that that's that's the science of how a brewery is going to determine ABV is they're just going to measure the the beginning and the ending specific gravities and the difference in the two is going to tell them the ABV so uh I mean there's a there's a scale um I mean I could look it up but it's unless you're like super into that data it's not really going to mean a whole lot when you just look at a can I will say there are cans that list it I don't know. Some people could look at that and immediately say like, oh, that's a high ABV drink or that's a low ABV beer. But, but I, I mean, I don't pay too much attention to that because most likely the ABV is on the beer as well. And you can just look at that. So. Yeah, ABV is on the yeah, that, that one's <laughs> always printed on the beer. So, all right. Cool. Do you have specific gravity on that one too? So there's not specific gravity there's, oh, but there's origi- original gravity oh okay okay so that was the start 1.091 okay means yeah. nothing to me <laughs> <laughs> That's great. all right well i think that was all of our uh things that was uh deciphering the can all the things you might see on a can yeah so hopefully that helps some of you kind of wade through the vast world of your cans <laughs> beer cans well i learned a couple and beer styles and yeah for sure so thank you for listening we want to invite you to follow us on instagram we have instagram it's attenuation.podcast we try to post kind of the pictures of the beers we've been drinking or just whatever you know we have around at the time um and then we also have an email what is our email steven uh contact.attenuation at gmail.com so yes feel free to email us your compliments, your criticisms, your suggestions for topics. We actually just got a few good suggestions for topics from a listener, so we will be exploring those coming up. Um, But yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please recommend to your beer-drinking or not-beer-drinking friends because we'll help get your friends addicted so they'll drink beer with you. Yeah, we will. But yeah, that's going to do it all, uh, for this time. My if our beer snobbery <laughs> doesn't turn them off first. <laughs> yeah, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going <laughs> to scare them away or entice them within. So, all right. Well, yeah, my name is Jason, and I'm joined by my best friend since eighth grade here. Steven? Me. That's you. And we are signing off. So cheers, and we will see you next time for episode nine. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Attenuation, a beer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more fun content. We'll catch you next week. Cheers.